very often there hasn't been much thought given to why and what they hope to accomplish. The most important thing, know your audience. Passage to Profit, Road to Entrepreneurship. You just heard some snippets from our show. It was a really great one, so stay tuned. Want to protect your business? The time is near. You've given it heart. Now, get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. I am Kenya Gibson filling in for Richard Gearhart. I'm Elizabeth Gearhart. I do marketing for Gearhart Law and I have my own startups. Yeah, so really excited today. Joining us on the show is David Dorier, who is a presentation skills expert. He's a voiceover talent and he's the owner of Classic Long Island Radio Online. And he's a professional Santa Claus. Ah, thank you so much. <laughs> and then we have Andrew Shulkin, who is a B2B marketing expert. I really mean that because I work with him. And he's the author of Marketing for Small B2B Businesses. And we are going to dig into some stuff today. But before that, we have our segment, Marketing in the News, because there has been some big marketing news. Instagram rolled out its version of Twitter, as some would say, which is called Threads. So you're a big Twitter fan, but you also love Instagram. You now have the ability to play around with the interface in another way in the form of Twitter. You can post pictures, write short sentences, just like Twitter. So it's very similar in how you would use Twitter, but it's through the interface of Instagram. So I thought that was interesting. 10 million people have joined, I think in like two days or something crazy like that. It was nuts. But if you join, there's a big caveat because I was talking to some people about this last night at a networking thing. If you join threads through your Instagram account, if you decide to delete threads, it deletes your Instagram account too. But it does automatically post from Instagram to threads. You can connect them together, right? Kinda. So you can post from threads to IG. I don't think it's the reverse way around. Like you have to oh. post through threads and then you can share to your stories and as a post. The only thing I didn't like about it, and I'm not sure if it was like a kink that they need to work out. When I went to go post on threads and then I added it to my IG profile page, it took away some of my pin posts, which I was oh. annoyed about. In order to get the pin posts back, I had to delete the threads post from my feed. So that was, I, I think that might've just been a glitch, but so far I like it. I haven't used it that much. I think I've only posted like three times in there. I saw you had posted and tagged me in something and then I had reposted it. Um, but other than that, I've only posted like a couple of times, but I'm also not a big Twitter person either. So, right. Well, I used Twitter years ago for the law firm. And then after 2015 or so, it just started to get too filled up with weird stuff. So I kind of quit using it and I hadn't started any new Twitter accounts. But yes, I have a website. I'm putting together my own brand, which is Elizabeth Gearhart PhD. So I started a new Instagram account for that. And I started a thread for that because I have four different things I'm working on right now. And I feel like I'm scattered all over the place. So I just brought them together under one brand and one mm -hmm. website. So do you think it's going to displace Twitter? No, absolutely not. And I think it's for a different type of user. So if you were never a Twitter person and you were like very codependent on IG, I think it's great for that type of person, which is that's what type of user I am. Like I'm a, I don't use Twitter at all. I don't think that it's going to take people away from Twitter altogether. I think it's cool. I think there's going to be a place for it in marketing. I think it's a great way to build a brand new audience quickly with content without a bunch of ads. So I encourage people, if you're not in the thread space, to leverage the time now where it's not inundated with ads and a bunch of junk to build some really meaningful content and a new followership. But I don't think Twitter's going away or it's going to be any less significant. It's just been around too long and people are too used to the way it works. Yeah. Andrew is a B2B marketer so i can see him nodding his head i'm sure he knows all about threads and david is a message sculptor i guess i want to call you so he really helps people engage an audience and keep them engaged in presentations and speaking and also as santa claus <laughs> so andrew let's start with you what do you think about threads i think i disagree maybe a little or potentially a little with kenya that twitter could go away i mean this might be a wake-up call for elon uh, then again you know before this just happened with threads you know investment that was a 44 billion dollar investment i read recently it was now worth 15 billion, which I'll take the 15 billion, but yeah. I'm about used to have 44. So if this is a wake up call for him, Twitter will survive. It's got a huge installed base, but it's a mess. And it's not just with Elon's involvement. Elizabeth, you mentioned 2015, 2016. That's sort of when things really sort of changed, I think, for Twitter. 
and it got very noisy and very difficult to navigate as a brand, I would say. So Threads is not fully formed, which is to be expected. That's kind of the way the tech world works. You know, everything's in beta all the time. And there are some pretty key features that are lacking in Threads that Twitter has. And I assume that they'll add them as quickly as they can. I bet they have a pretty good engineering team. But it's already light years ahead of everything else that sort of stepped into that void trying to be the next Twitter, like Mastodon. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Mastodon, but yeah. it's kind of a DIY thing that was going to be the next Twitter, except it had to kind of be techie to make it happen. So really cool platform, but it'd be interesting to see what the community turns into, whether it's more Instagram-like, more Facebook-like, or more Twitter-like. It will be interesting. So David, what are your thoughts? You know, I've never been a big Twitter user, and I understand the importance of social media and the marketing behind social media. The only one social media platform that I've really been strongly a part of, and that still is LinkedIn. I have several accounts on Twitter, but I haven't done much with them because I was finding that it's just taking up so much of my time. It's like a full-time job on these different social media sites. I have now started to post more often on my Facebook page, my business Facebook page. But LinkedIn is the place for me that I'm finding that I'm getting most of my leads and most of my contacts through there. And I really lost a lot of interest with Twitter when Elon Musk took over and all of that mayhem was going on. Any advertising that I have, I've taken off my Twitter feed link off of that because Number one, I'm not doing anything with it because if someone was to go there and see, well, he hasn't posted in three or four years, I look at that as credibility that if you're going to have these social media links, that they have to be current and up to date and you need to be doing something with them. Yeah, I agree 100%. What do you think, Ken? I was going to say, I think the winning formula for Twitter is going to be not as censored as it used to be. I think that was one of the reasons why Elon Musk took it over. I see Meta as a very censored platform on all of the user faces, like so Facebook, Instagram. I can't imagine Threads is going to be any different. So I think the formula for winning there is if Twitter positions itself as a place of free speech where people aren't going to be censored, that could be the thing that differentiates it over threads where it could be a very censored environment. Or they could just decide it in the cage match. <laughs> it's passage to profit. I'm Kenya Gibson sitting in for Richard Gearhart. I'm here with my co-host Elizabeth today, and we are joined by David Dorier, who is a presentation skills expert. I mentioned earlier in the intro that he is a voiceover talent and he's the owner of Classic Long Island Radio. And he's also a professional Santa Claus. Very, very interesting. So welcome to Passage to Profit. Thank you so much, Kenya. Elizabeth? You are a public speaking expert. What is the most important thing? Let's just dive right in. Most important thing is to know your audience. One of the things that I see that many speakers struggle with is not first understanding who it is that they're speaking to. And sometimes they'll come into that room and speak to the audience as if we are all experts in that same field, which is going to cause the information is going to go right over our heads. So the most important thing, know your audience. What does talking and telling ain't training or selling mean? That's my tagline, talking and telling ain't training or selling. And that comes from my many years as a trainer. My background is training and development and also training trainers to train. And what I have found in the past is many subject matter experts will feel that because they're an expert in their field, it automatically qualifies them to be a great presenter or a great trainer. So they'll come into a room and just start talking and telling information to an audience. And there's no engagement in that. And by just talking and telling, that does not equal engaging training or engaging selling. Do you work with people individually? Do you work with clients? And do you help them get to that point where they can engage an audience? Yes, yes, and yes. So it's uh, individual one-on-one -on -one coaching, as well as team coaching and working with teams of trainers, teams of salespeople, teams of executives, mid-level managers as well, and helping them all achieve the same thing. And that is taking their existing experience with speaking but helping them to understand how to incorporate engagement principles into their current presentation. 
I've had an opportunity to evaluate a lot of people over the last 15 or 20 years. Many of these people were in corporate. Many of them were in networking events. And I always walked away with three things that people seem to struggle with the most. And one was not knowing the audience. The second was not incorporating stories into their presentations. Most times people were just throwing out data to their audience. And by incorporating stories, now you're emotionally bringing people in to your message. If you're talking about a client or a past uh, hardship of some sort that we can all relate to, that we're going to learn something from that's going to help us, those stories are going to help us to see it, smell it, taste it, experience it within ourselves, and we are all going to be more emotionally connected. There were many speakers that would just get to the end of their presentation, get to the end of the training, whatever it happens to be, and say, good night, we're out of here. And there was nothing to conclude. And simply, you can have a review, certainly if it's training, let's review what it is that we covered today. One of the principles of engagement is repetition, and the audience is needing that review so we can kind of put it all together again. What did we do today? We spent all day in here. Let's review it. A speaker can also do the same thing, could have a review at the end, or, and definitely some sort of a call to action. So how do you make a boring person interesting? That's a great question. First of all, <laughs> that boring person, first of all, has to have the motivation to want to be a compelling speaker. The only way to get through to people is for them to recognize the need of change. You know, I can certainly bring up and give the evaluation and say that I saw these things within your presentation, and one of them was that you need to open up your mouth more. They need to see it themselves. I learned this from training. If you're just telling everybody that they need to change, I'm telling you to do this, I'm telling you to do that, your audience is not going to change. They have to see it, feel it, understand it for themselves, and understand the with them. What's in it for me? What's the value in stopping mumbling? What's the value of enunciating my words? They need to find that out themselves. Yeah, well, back in the good old days when everybody was in the studio for every show, we had Noah for that. So we would get the mumblers and we would get the trotters and Noah would come running in. Running in. And it was so funny. We'd be like, oh, here comes Noah. You're in trouble. And, and that helped a lot. I think some people don't even realize how they're coming across to their audience because they, they're so used to speaking in that way. No one has said anything to them, so they think it's okay. I do that sometimes. I have a tendency to talk quickly, and I think I'm coming off as coherent to someone, and they'll turn around and be like, what? What'd you say? And I need that sometimes, right? We all need a little a little nudge to, to be a little bit more articulate. I want to talk, though, however, about the biggest sale of all time, which is Santa Claus. First of all, how did you get into that as a character? And do you feel that you've used some of your experience with playing Santa Claus into your trainings and how you've taught people how to be better public speakers? First of all, how I got started in it, I was at the time I was living in Northern California. I was working full-time radio at the time, but I, like many people in radio, I found some of the fame, but none of the fortune. So I had to go out and find a part-time job. I was doing some community theater. I did a lot of community theater for about 15 years, and I was scanning the newspaper and outside of Oakland, California, and I saw an ad that said, Santa's wanted. I immediately was attracted to that. I went down to the Western Temporary Agency in Oakland, California. They put me through their little Santa school. I left there with a box that had a Santa suit inside of it. I didn't have the beard at the time. I had to strap it on. And within a day or so, I was doing Santa visits. I was doing malls and larger engagements. And two things happened to me immediately. Number one, I felt comfortable. There was a lot that I had to learn about being a good Santa Claus. However, I felt good being in the shoes of that character. There was something about Christmas in my home as a child that was very emotional to me. And those feelings were coming back and envisioning my father and his presence. He was not Santa, but he had that Santa Claus presence on Christmas morning. So those feelings were coming back, and I just found that I loved it. And I found immediately 
that wearing a Santa suit's like wearing a magnet. You are like the Pied Piper in that thing, and you are the center of attention. But for years, I had the strap-on beard and the mustache and all that, and I felt that it was easy for me to hide behind that. It wasn't David. It was, it was Santa Claus in that room. So there was quite an adjustment. Well, it turned out it wasn't much of an adjustment. Now when I do Santa with the real beard, I still do the same shtick. What's the weirdest thing any kid has ever asked you for? I get them every year. The one that pops to mind first is a young lady, seven, eight-ish years old, and she wanted real estate for Christmas. And in years <laughs> past, before the internet being as big as it was, kids would come in with clippings from Walmart ads, the Sears catalog, and they'd have things circled and pointing it out. It's available at this store and that store, and it costs this much. They'd have all the pages. What I find most exhilarating of being Santa Claus and most emotional is that young lady or the young boy that comes up, and they have written a letter to Santa Claus. They're all dressed up in their Sunday best, and that to me is just really emotional to think that, you know, I have no idea what went on before they showed up here, but I'm thinking that they picked out their outfit. They were anticipating going to see Santa. They've written out this letter to Santa Claus, their list to Santa Claus. And I've got boxes. I've got boxes. I saved all of them because I, I just could not throw any of that away. Screaming children, right? Kind of like uh, having a bad audience reaction, right? How do you how do you deal with that? And then how do you teach people who you're teaching to present to deal with like a poor audience reaction? That's a good one. Definitely somewhat relatable. I think in, in, in the Santa situation, <laughs> I think if you can remove the adult out of the situation, <laughs> the kids would be a lot better. Because what I have found is that, especially if there's a line waiting to see Santa, and what I've been able to observe as much as I can, because I'm really busy with what's going on around me, but what I'm able to observe is that Many adults will say, okay, when we get up there, don't be scared. Then they may see other kids getting all excited. Now the kid who's online is getting all excited saying, well, mom's telling me not to be excited. That kid just started crying. Oh my God, when I get up there, what's going to happen? So that's kind of the anxiety that happens. And sure, I'm a tall guy. I'm six foot two. And I get in that suit. I'm even bigger when I'm in that suit. And usually I'm sitting down when I'm with the kids. But a big guy in a red suit. It's kind of intimidating at times. So how do I deal with it? Number one, don't force the kid on Santa. I have <laughs> seen those kids just go into panic mode. The closer you put them to Santa, it's it's amazing what happens. Don't force them. Let them stand a, a, a little bit away from Santa. Let them kind of get used to the surroundings a little bit. They're also in a foreign place. They're in the middle of a mall surrounded by all of these other people in this strange environment. So they got a lot of things that's going on right at that one time. I will say we teach our kids stranger danger, and then we go tell them sit on the stranger's lap. <laughs> or force them to sit on Santa's knee. So anyway, you're listening to Passage to Profit, Road to Entrepreneurship with Kenya Gibson sitting in for Richard Gearhart. I'm Elizabeth Gearhart, and we will be right back after these messages. I'm Richard Gerhardt, founder of Gerhardt Law. We specialize in patents, trademarks, and copyrights. You can find out more at learnmoreabouttrademarks.com. We love working with entrepreneurs and helping their businesses grow. And here is our client, Ricky, to tell it like it is. Hi, I'm Ricky Frango, founder and CEO of Prime6. We manufacture high-performing, clean, and sustainable fuels like charcoal and logs. We've been working with Gearheart Law since the beginning, really, and they've helped us figure out the trademarks, the patents, everything that has to do with product development and how to protect our inventions. And we're extremely grateful for the wonderful team that has been supporting our business since day one. Thank you, Ricky. To learn more about trademarks, go to learnmoreabouttrademarks.com and download our free Entrepreneur's Guide to Trademarks or book a free consultation with me to discuss your patent and trademark needs. That's learnmoreabouttrademarks.com for your free booklet about trademarks and a free consultation. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. I'm Kenya Gibson sitting in for Richard Gearhart and Elizabeth and I have been sitting here having a great conversation with David Durrier. Yeah, and you had asked a question, Kenya. What do you do if you're up on stage speaking and you're losing your audience and they don't like what you're saying? There's a lot wrapped into that. That's certainly one scenario based on what the individual is saying. Maybe it's not resonating with the audience. 
Maybe there is a good example of a presenter that hasn't really gauged who their audience is, and they're delivering the wrong message to the wrong audience. Let's take another scenario, and that is that it is the right audience, it is the right message, but it's not engaging the audience. They're losing the audience. So there are a couple of things that I would suggest. Number one is having some sort of a compelling opening that's going to immediately engage the audience. And one of the ways to do that is by starting off with a question, certainly a relevant question. For example, a question I could ask my audience, how many people here get nervous when you're speaking in front of others? And I could follow that up with an additional question. And so that there is going to immediately engage the audience. And then my job as a speaker is to continuously engage them with stories, anecdotes, rhetorical questions. And depending on the situation, maybe they could do some sort of an exercise, either on their own or in small groups, for example. We had a note here about engaging virtual audiences, and I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about some of the differences and like some of the tactics that could be used there. Well, a lot of the same things that you use on stage can be used virtually. You just have to crank everything up to an 11. I think that in both situations, whether it's on stage or virtual, the most important part is setting that stage up front, letting people know what are we doing, how are we going to do it, what can you expect from me, the presenter? What can I expect from you, the audience? And again, immediately engaging them right in the beginning. If it's all just chatter, if it's all just data, whether it's on stage or virtual, virtual, it's so much easier to lose your audience. I have three screens here. I could be easily playing tic-tac-toe on some other screen or doing some other work over here. But if you're asking me questions, if you're telling me relevant stories, if you're making it interesting to me, I'm going to be more compelled to stay connected. I saw this woman give a presentation and I felt like she was over rehearsed and I felt like some of the stuff she was doing was not natural. Like she was doing this karate chop thing and approaching the audience. And I'm like, that doesn't look normal for you. <laughs> like, I don't think you would do that if you were talking to your best friend. So can you be over-rehearsed? And then you get kind of wooden, right? Definitely, definitely over-rehearsed. Based on the way that you described this woman who was doing the presentation, I'd be curious if she was reading her notes. You want to be you when you're presenting. You want to have your nuances, your stutters. I stutter at times. I get hung up on words. I call that my record is skipping at times. But that's a part of me. That's one of the things that in Toastmasters I always get evaluated on and people pick up on. But you've got to be yourself. However, you do need to have those foundational skills. How do you open a presentation? Making transitions, engaging questions, asking questions the correct way, responding to people correctly. In virtual world, the number one way of connecting with your audience is your camera, looking directly into the camera. How many times have you seen someone who's making a presentation and they're talking the whole time looking over here at this screen because that's where all the faces are? Yeah, I'm looking at all the faces, but I'm not looking at my audience by looking into that camera. So, Andrew, you're starting to promote your book and you're starting to go on a lot of podcasts and stuff. Are you finding any challenges? I'm not sure that I've found any that are specific to that. Speaking to an audience is always, you know, can always be a challenge. I'll, I'll ask David a, a question I have based on an experience I had where it sort of came to mind very early on, you mentioned there's only one person in the room who is, you know, thinking this might fail. And I think that's true in this instance, but I was brought in to speak to a small group of CEOs about thought leadership and using that in your marketing. And I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes into what was supposed to be three hours worth of presentation and interactivity, the person who brought me in was feigning sleep in his seat being kind about it, we could say, well, he really wanted this to succeed and he felt badly that this was not what he had advertised, I guess, or we had miscommunicated in some way. And I took the hint and pretty quickly pivoted to the interactive portion of what we were doing. What would you have done in that situation or what would you have suggested? My first observation or question around that is his going to sleep, did that have to do with what you were saying or is it just this individual just didn't get any sleep last night and there's stuff going on in this guy's world that is causing him to go to sleep. Is it you, do you think, was the problem or is it him that's the problem? 
Oh, it was me. In his estimation, it was me. I was I was okay. not what he expected. Okay. You keyed in on that where it didn't become a big distraction to you, where some people it could, someone's fallen asleep, and now that has caused me to just fall apart up on stage. So it's good that you transitioned. If you felt that it wasn't going in the right direction, maybe there was an opportunity to get some polling questions to feel out your audience on what would be most important to them based on the topic of what you were talking about. Based on that, what would be most important for you all to learn about that topic? That's a great suggestion. Thank you. Well, Andrew, you're very professional. That's what I would have probably called the guy out. <laughs> yeah, I was. So, did you ask him, Andrew? That was that he told you that was the reason why. He yeah. Just... Afterwards, I, you know, I said, "Hey, what's up with that?" You know, that really, as David just pointed out, that really could have gone south in a hurry yeah. if it had just flustered me. I think looking back on it now, and especially in light of what David said, I should have said, "Hang on, everybody. It seems like maybe I'm not giving what was expected here. Let's talk a little about what your expectations are." And we can move right into some interactive exercises to drive some of these points home. But let me know if that's that's where we want to go. And I I really just pivoted on my own. And of course, this fellow miraculously woke up. I think this is really important. Passage to Profit with Kenya Gibson filling in for Richard Gearhart. I'm Elizabeth Gearhart. We will be right back. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley, the inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years hundreds of products later, and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world, QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Kenya Gibson sitting in for Richard Gearhart. I'm Elizabeth Gearhart. We have just been speaking to David Dorier and... Wow, that's all I've got to say. All of us have to make presentations today, whether we want to or not. And he's got the secret sauce if you want to keep people listening. But right now, Kenny's going to do her power move. Yes. So for power move today, we are going to be talking about Rosemary Gonzalez. She is a stager of the 24-hour flip on A&E TV. And I'm highlighting her today because she was recently on my power move podcast. And she was an interior, well, she is an interior designer who found her calling for aesthetics in design through a friend who had saw her work. So she figured out that she had this gift and she had this calling and she was able to transition from just doing interior home design to doing it as a stager on TV and got picked up for the show. So I thought that it was a major power move, right? Because to land a gig on TV and not only land a gig on TV, but doing something that you're really good and passionate about. So she is our Power Move for today, and you can check her out and listen to her story on my Power Move podcast. Congratulations to her. That is really hard to do. So hard to do, but it can be done. Yeah, so I have a couple of things going on. One of them is Blue Streak Directory. It's a video directory of B2B businesses online. And Andrew Shulkin is helping me set up the platform. We're doing a website and it's really exciting. We've decided to do a couple new things. I want to go start promoting this. So we're going to do a landing page so people can sign up when we go live, when we launch, they'll know. And yeah, so we're making a lot of progress on that. I found a piece of software that we're going to integrate with the site. It was something that really didn't exist when I started this as Fireside in 2019, or it was just really early days for it. And I love what Andrew said. Tech is always in beta, right? And I'm taking some software that was made for something else for a different purpose, and we're trying to adapt it to use with the website. So that's exciting and fun for me. And then I also have a podcast with Danielle Woolley. It's called the Jersey Podcasts Podcast, where we talk about cats. And it started because I have a cat who kept scratching at his face and just got really horrible and took him to vets. I ended up counting up the number of vet visits and medicine changes. It was 26 over eight months. 
So started a podcast to try to get help from the community to figure out how can I help this poor little cat? We started this podcast and we're building a community and we have a guest come on and we have all sorts of people talking about all sorts of things. It's called the Jersey Podcast Podcast. So without further ado, I want to now introduce Andrew Shelkin. The name of his company is Andigo, and he is the author of Marketing for Small B2B Businesses. Welcome, Andrew. Very nice to be here. Andigo is the company. We are a digital marketing and strategy agency. We work mostly with B2B businesses in the 2 to $25 million range, helping them to build marketing muscle, as we say with content marketing programs and website design and development. We work with a range of industries within that two to $25 million range and focus a lot on working with mission-driven businesses. So B Corps and similar organizations with a double bottom line approach to creating profits and doing some good in the world at the same time. Our approach can be summed up in three words, motivation, message, and metrics, which means that we work with you to make sure we understand the motivation of your audience and audience segments, which we can get into. They've got a problem to solve, of course, but what is happening that has helped them realize that there's an issue? What are the costs of that issue? Are there costs to doing nothing? Uh, is there an outcome that would help them get over the perceived risk of taking action, whether that action is with you or someone else? Those are the kinds of things that we want to understand in order to craft a message based on that motivation and then take that message and adapt it for various product or service lines you may have, for the audience segments I mentioned a minute ago, and kind of critically and often overlooked for where in the buying journey your audience is. They're going to have different levels of knowledge and different interests and concerns depending on whether they are just starting on this buying journey and education of themselves or whether they're very close to making decisions. Along the way, we'll define some metrics that will help us track whether we're achieving the results we want and will help us be thoughtful in iterating our work as we strive to improve marketing results consistently over time. That's very impressive. I started a company before Andigo in 1993 and started Andigo in 1996. So we've been at it for a while. And funny because in the beginning, it was such a young industry and you know, I was just a kid. I had a partner in 1993 and he would go out and sell and he would come back and say, hey, I told them we could do this. And then I would spend that night and the next day figuring out whether we could do that. Now, <laughs> you know, I, I think back now, I'm like, wow, I, I, I didn't sleep. That's just so stressful. And fortunately, we're not involved in that kind of world anymore. But that's how young it was. And no one was in any different position. We, you know, we were all trying to figure it out on the fly, which was kind of fun, but uh, not something I would want to continue for, you know, 27 years. So I am reading Andrew's book, Marketing for Small B2B Businesses, because I love this book, not just because I know Andrew and respect him and love the work he's doing on my website, not just that, but if I didn't know Andrew, I'd still love this book because one of the things I like the most about it, well, two things, it's real, you can actually take the things in there and use them in your business. But the other thing is, is he has kind of short chapters, which we talked about previously, and the short chapters give you time to kind of digest and really understand and think about ways to use what you just learned in your business. And we had talked about people that just throw a bunch of information at you, but this really gives you the chunks that you can digest and think about for your business and then move on to the next section. I'm glad you noticed that, Elizabeth, because it's very much a, a conscious choice and maybe a little bit unconscious too, because so much of what we do uh, for ourselves and on behalf of our clients is done online. And of course, there, nobody reads, right? It's all you scan and you hope that there's a headline that catches your eye and then maybe you dig a little bit deeper. But the idea is it's got to be quick. It's got to be punchy. And it does have to give you a chance to take that action before you're just jumping off onto the next thing. What is the first thing you tell your clients they need to do? So much of that depends on sort of where they are, which is something that uh, David touched on earlier, you know, depending on sort of their skill level and comfort and level of sophistication. But more than anything, it's understanding who their audience is and understanding that the key to marketing today is providing value. Like we all know about the unique selling propositions and key differentiators and all that, but your marketing has to do that as well. There has to be information in there that's of use to me as a prospect and not just information about you. All that comes later. I, you know, at some point, I guess I'll care, you know, where you went to college and how many collective decades of experience you have and all that stuff that's in the about section of your website. But in the beginning, I want to know not just what you do, but what you can do for me, right? That's something that I'm pretty fond of saying. Your prospects don't care about you. Your prospects don't even care about what you do. 
your prospects care about what you can do for them. So that's where you've got to start. If there's nothing else that you take away from any conversation you have with me, it should be that. And go review every piece of marketing you have from your website to you know tiny little social media posts and think about whose perspective it's being written from. Is it about you or is it about your audience, the help that they are trying to get? And in having that conversation, are you shining a light on your own expertise as an addition? It's really more got to be about that. That's interesting. So I want to take it even a step back further, right? And like defining what content marketing actually is, right? Because I feel like I've been marketed to since MTV was around, right? Like in subliminal ways. So could you just like define what content marketing is is so that people know exactly how to distinguish it from anything else that they might be engaging with? Sure. Although at this point, I think the lines have pretty well blurred. You know, old fashioned marketing was very inward facing. It's about me and us and less about you and what you need. Although that concept isn't new, right? There was always the differentiation between features and benefits. And if you're talking about features all the time, that's fine, except no one really wants a quarter inch drill bit. They want a quarter inch hole. They have this problem. They need to drill this hole. That's what they're trying to do. And they don't really care how it's done. I mean, there's pretty much just one way to do that these days, right? Like that's what we all know. But that's the difference in marketing. Are you talking about the drill bit or are you talking about the outcome? And I think that that to me sums up what the you know sort of underlying goal of content marketing is these days. That's interesting that you say that because I feel like there's all these different opportunities and ways to be creative to direct market to someone, whether it be a product placement and music or a video piece, or again, a laundry list of like, here are all the things we do. So if you had to advise your client, what is the best lane in terms of highlighting those benefits versus just writing out a laundry list of like, we do this, we do this, we do this. We'll see if this answers your question. I think most critically is figuring out where your audience is, understanding where they are and where you can meet them on their own turf so that they are comfortable, right? They're, they've got their guard a little bit further down rather than, you know, when we're all opening direct mail pieces, our guard's up. Until proven otherwise, this is garbage. I'm not even sure why I'm opening it and I might open it or I might not. Whereas if you get them in, say, a LinkedIn group, perhaps, since I'm talking mostly about B2B, where they've already had great experiences having really interesting and informative conversations with their peers. And you can slide in there with something of value that would cause them to say, oh, hey, this is a person who knows what he or she is talking about. That's much more valuable than spamming a group like that with a flyer that, you know, is offering 50% off your service X or, you know, whatever the case may be, which of course is different than B2C focused product placement and things like that. Right. So David, do you have a comment or question? You know, what I find fascinating with what it is that you do is the similarities between what someone needs to think about when they craft a speech and the same things they need to think about when they are building their business. Who's your audience? It's not about you. It's about what it is that you can bring to your audience. What one thing can you say is the one area that these business owners seem to struggle with the most when they come to you and say, I need a website? Very often, there hasn't been much thought given to why and to what they hope to accomplish. So we try and roll back to that point, which sometimes starts getting into questions of branding, right? You know, is this on brand with who you are and, and is it consistent with the brand that you've put out there already? But we really want to make sure that there's an understanding of that because our expertise really only has value if we can put into place tactics that are going to work. And so maybe you do need a new website, but let's talk about why. What's not working about this website? How do you know that? Do you have metrics that are pointing you in that direction? Or are you just getting anecdotal complaints? In that case, should we have some conversations with prospects, with clients, with employees, right? You know, we're very much of the opinion that marketing does not end when the sale is closed. Every point of contact that you have with a customer thereafter is marketing and it is branding at that point. And you really have to pay attention to whether that's a positive experience or a negative experience. And, you know, it's always the ground in the middle, which of course, you know, the grand bell curve of life, right? Most of things are in the middle at one extreme. Things are so terrible that the client just walks out. The other extreme, things are so wonderful that they become champions for you and great referral sources. But in the middle, there's a great opportunity to turn those folks who are just having an okay experience and inertia is keeping there because you're doing what you promised, but 
you're not delighting them or wowing them in any way that is making them think, gosh, I have to tell someone else about this. So I want to make sure that they understand that there has to be a, a reason behind what we're doing. And then you have to execute really, really well. Do fewer things well. What channels do you think people should be on in social media? Does that depend on their business too? You framed it in the question. It really depends on your business, right? You know, David mentioned earlier, he's most active on LinkedIn. That's true for my business as well. That's where our audience is. So that's where it makes the most sense for us to be. There was a period, it seems to be waning a bit, where I was surprised at the number of our clients who were telling us about the success they were having on Facebook as B2B companies. And there are groups out there for PR professionals and marketers and all sorts of other industries that we serve that probably 40 to 55 age group that it was really popular and did really, really well. So it really does depend on your audience and where they are. Yeah, I've always felt like LinkedIn was the best thing for B2B. I've heard some negative things about it from people. And I do find like LinkedIn is super saturated now. I used to get invites, which was fine, but people want me to follow them to join their company page. I get promotions all the time. So it's kind of getting messy. It is. And that's true everywhere. I'd, I'd say that's true with uh, SEO, pay-per-click advertising. It's very difficult to break through all of that noise, which I'll separate from competition. There's plenty of competition. There always was. But now there's just so much noise that isn't really competitive. You're just competing to get some of the attention, pushing all that stuff aside. Do you think that narrowing who you define as your audience helps with that? Absolutely. And that's where audience segmentation becomes really critical and understanding that you can't be all things to all people. And even what you do, we talk about being a content marketing agency and a web development agency. That's a challenge, right, from a marketing standpoint. And most of our marketing focuses on one or the other so that we're out there trying to niche down, you know, by talking about the mission-driven businesses we work with so I can niche down further. So that's sort of the key. Any other good business that comes in, you know, over the transom, that's fantastic, but you shouldn't be out there marketing to try and get those companies as well. When you take a look at like behavioral insights when you're developing plans for your clients, what does that look like? in terms of like how people are consuming certain platforms and even like from a qualitative standpoint, like what their interests may be. How do you work that into the plan for your clients? That brings to mind a period uh, a couple of years ago where, boy, every new client that came in asking for a website wanted to build a mobile first website. It had to be mobile first. And because we work with B2B businesses, I mean, you know, this is when responsive coding was kind of new um, and you could build one website and it would adapt automatically to you know the size screen, the type of device it was being displayed on, which is fantastic. And it really is a wonderful advance. But people wanted this mobile first approach, even though we would point out, let's take a look at your analytics for your website and we'll find that 12% of your audience is mobile. Right? You're a B2B company. People are at their desks typically. Yet you might get some folks who are, are going to check things out on their phone or iPad while they're commuting, but well, it's 12% of them. Do we really want a mobile first approach? Let's look at the data. That's the first answer. Let's look at the data and have it tell us where we should be going with you know some grains of salt thrown in there. If your mobile experience is really bad, maybe that 12% would be 20% if we improve it. So certainly let's not throw away one-fifth of your audience, but maybe mobile first isn't really the approach we need to take. Similarly, I would look at analytics and get a sense of what path people are taking through a website, particularly if there are differences between the paths they take depending on where they came from. Did they come from your email marketing campaign? Did they come from a social media campaign? Did they just land on the homepage and you're not sure how? Where do they go? What do they look at? And when did they leave? Are there any clues that you can tease out of that to tell you that there are bottlenecks or that you're not converting them, doing sort of the mini conversions, getting them to consume another piece of content or join your mailing list or something like that. So very much a data-driven approach, I think, is what you've got to take if you're trying to suss out different parts of an audience and they're interested in different kinds of products or services that you're offering. Yeah, I think the mobile thing, too, is interesting when you think of the age demographic. And you're right, B2B people are at their desk. So with Blue Street that I'm developing, I'm in this peer advisory board, and I got a lot of feedback from my board this week during our meeting. And they're like, you can't use the software, not the website, but this other software on your phone. One of the young people in there said that. But the other people were like, yeah, but who 
who's your target? And it's like, well, my target are people that have established businesses. So they're probably a little older. They're probably not doing everything on their phone. Like my 27-year-old daughter does everything on her phone. She doesn't even have a computer anymore. I'm like, how can you live that way? But I think that the people that I'm targeting for B2B probably are at their desk with a laptop or a desktop, right? Yep. We've already looked at the data there and uh, that bore that out. Absolutely. David. So what are some of the trends now with websites, you know, being a consumer or being a viewer of different websites? And I was looking at a variety of different websites just the other day doing some research. And I'm just seeing that these websites are transforming into these multimedia, very engaging platforms. So what is the current trend in what's important to have on your website today? I would say that we are entering a period or coming out of a period where so many websites looked the same. There was really a similarity across design that just seemed to, you know, go through whether it was people emulating Apple or, you know, just some trend that sort of took the world by storm. And we seem to be moving past that into another era of much more diversity in terms of what websites look like. I don't know that there are technologies that I would say, you know, there are things like parallax design where, you know, things move at different rates down the screen, but that sort of page choreography is um, making a bit of a comeback, you know, that there is more engagement visually on pages. But at the same time, there's still a lot of use of white space as there should be so that you're keeping, you know, short, compact, very tightly crafted messages there on page, making them very easy to focus on. The biggest fight we have with every web project is how much stuff we are not going to put on the homepage. You know, everyone who's involved, all the stakeholders who were involved early on, have something that is their pet project that is, you know, near and dear to their professional heart. They want it on the website. And yeah, of course, the more stuff you put on that homepage, the less emphasis any of them have. So making sure that it is a message-driven design more than anything else, I'd say is pretty critical. And then use the tools that feel comfortable. There are very different fields for a very staid financial services company versus a skateboarding sneaker brand. Absolutely. This has been really a wealth of information. Thank you, Andrew. Stay tuned. There's more coming. Passage to Profit with Kenya Gibson sitting in for Richard Gearhart. I'm Elizabeth Gearhart, and we'll be right back. I'm Richard Gearhart, founder of Gearhart Law. We specialize in patents, trademarks, and copyrights. You can find out more at learnmoreaboutpatents.com. We love working with entrepreneurs, and here's our client, Peter, who tells it like it is. I'm Peter Olsson, founder of On Enough. We recently were elected as one of the best invention of Time Magazine for 2022. Through this journey, we've been relying on Gerhard Law to guide us in the right steps to build a right portfolio of patents, trademarks to support our launch of our new products. It has been a great experience working with Gerhard Law as they have a deep knowledge into the market, both in North America and overseas. So we make the right choices at the right time. Thank you, Peter. To learn more about patents, go to learnmoreaboutpatents.com and download our free Entrepreneur's Guide to Patents or book a free consultation with me. That's learnmoreaboutpatents.com. It's Passage to Profit. Noah Fleischman is our producer here at Passage to Profit, and he never stops trying to make sense of the future by looking at the past. It just wouldn't have been my aunt's kitchen in the 1970s without the bright rainbow presence of Tupperware. And the best thing about Tupperware was you couldn't buy it in stores. Long before social media, back in the 1940s, Tupperware was the first big trender. A man named Earl Tupper developed a plastic alternative to glass kitchenware, but it was just a little too futuristic for the retail stores. So with the help of a marketing genius, a lady named Brownie Wise, they figured out a way to inspire the housewives of America to sell Tupperware to one another with fun parties and events. Before long, no kitchen was without Tupperware for many, many years. Until now. With all the patented retail knockoffs over the years, Tupperware and all its high-flying costs and perks is kind of going out. Can't make it anymore. The founding father is seeing its demise. But what a lesson in marketing. When someone takes out a Ziploc container and says, here, I'll put it in the Tupperware, that's a trend without a computer. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. Can you give send filling in for Richard Gearhart? And it is now time for Elizabeth's question. So I'm going to ask Dave Dorier, what kind of presentations do you like to attend in person? Well, that's a great question. I, number one, they need to be engaging no matter what the subject is. Sometimes when I was a trainer, I would say trainers make the worst participants. I think presentation skill coaches 
make the worst participants because we're constantly evaluating whoever's up on stage. But number one, being entertaining and engaging and being a member of National Speakers Association, every meeting, every month, they would bring in a great speaker and talking about the craft of building a speaking business. That always fascinated me, understanding their life journey. So engaging and hearing about the journey of how people have made this business a success. Oh, that's great. And Andrew Shulkin, what about you? Engaging, as David said, is important, but relevance. I'll sit through the person reading the slides if there's real value in it to me personally or business-wise or, you know, why ever I'm there. So Kenya Gibson. I love to go to music concerts and it is a form of a presentation. I'm really against lip singing, bad audio. If that's going on, it's just not a good experience. And I just don't think it's a great presentation of an artist if those things are out of order. Yeah. So I like to go to entrepreneur forums. There's one Aspire is coming up. Barbara Cochran's going to be speaking at it. And I like those big ones because you know it's Barbara Cochran. You know she's going to give a good presentation. You know she's going to engage her audience. You know she's not going to be boring. I think if you go to a presentation that's not engaging, you feel bored. And I want to go eat a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> so I think it kind of depends on how it makes you feel. And I love educational things too. Joining us on the show is David Dorier, owner of Classic Long Island Radio Online. Classic Long Island Radio. It's a internet-based radio station. No commercials. 24-7. I have over 8,000 songs in the library, all from 60s. 70s and 80s, mostly album-oriented rock. What I like to say about the station, there is a lot of deep cuts. There are the hits that you will recognize, but there are many more deep cuts from artists that you will recognize and deep cuts from artists that you've never heard of. So it's been quite a journey for me when I started this back in 2015. And you're still doing it now? Still doing it now. You may not hear it in the background, but it's on in the background. Listen to it worldwide. Go to cliradio.com, classic Long Island radio, cliradio.com. There's also a link on there or a tab on there where you can find where it's listed on multiple directories. It's even listed in iHeartRadio. Good. David Dorier, you can find him at presentyourwaytosuccess.com elearningvoiceover.com, which I looked at that website. That's really interesting, too. And then cliradio.com, as he just said. And then santahoho.com. So if you're in the Atlanta area and maybe want a Santa Claus, <laughs> he's your guy. And then, of course, on LinkedIn. And then we had Andrew Shulkin with Andigo, A-N-D-I-G-O. And it's andigo.com. And he also has marketing for small B2B businesses. He's an expert in the field, I have to say. When I first met Andrew during COVID networking, I didn't understand what an expert in the field he is, but he's really your go-to guy. And I think he dives in deeper than a lot of people do to really look at cause and effect and strategy and new things coming up and the history too. So I'm really glad I'm working with him. We want to thank the Passage to Profit team, which is Alicia Morrissey, our program coordinator, Noah Fleischman, our amazing producer who always makes us sound so much better. And of course, Kenya Gibson, the media maven. And look for the podcast tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, at Passage to Profit Show, Twitter, at Passage to Profit, and we have a YouTube channel. While the information provided during this program is believed to be correct, never take a legal step without first checking with your legal professional. For all your patent, trademark, and copyright needs, our firm, Gearheart Law, offers free consultations. You can visit us at gearheartlaw.com. Join us next week for another show of Passage to Profit, Road to Entrepreneurship. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to all of our participants. We'll see you next week. 